No matter where your business is in Canada, connectivity shouldn't be a concern. Whether your business is rural, remote, or urban, reliable, scalable internet is available to you and your business. Explore Business is expanding our network. With our extensive fiber, fixed wireless, and satellite networks, we're able to bring you the connectivity your business deserves, with the ability to grow right where you are. With investments in fiber and 5G technology, Explore Business is your new choice for business internet. Get connected with Explore Business today. Are you ready to clear a new path? Welcome to Clearing a New Path podcast, a space for the underrepresented voices in rural Canada. I'm your host, Shauna Ray. Each episode, we'll speak authentic truth because it's the truth that connects us. We'll examine issues, solutions, and hope outside of the city limits. Clearing a New Path podcast is an invitation to listen and learn along with me, on the road to building a more united, feminist, anti-racist rural Canada. One rooted in diversity and driven by reconciliation. Let's learn together, clearing a new path. Professor Kim English first sent me an email suggesting the topic of rural and remote nursing. Kim is a doctoral candidate who has been teaching nurses at the undergraduate and postgraduate level since 2002. Kim draws from her clinical experiences in acute care and professional practice and her lived experiences in rural health and working with Indigenous communities. Kim's narrative-informed research explores the work of rural and remote nurses, celebrating their innovation and leadership. Kim's work draws from the social sciences and humanities. She is privileged as a settler to be able to learn with and from many Indigenous nurses, elders, and colleagues to inform an anti-colonial lens to her understanding of context and health. This is important as she addresses issues in the provision of nursing education using virtual simulations, the impact of inclusive, anti-racist, and anti-oppressive approaches to education. Kim has a particular interest in addressing racism in healthcare to serve as an ally to Indigenous populations. Internationally, Kim is working with a collective of fellows from Switzerland, New Zealand, and Australia to explore the enhancement of scope of practice in rural areas to address primary healthcare needs. It is expected this fellowship will grow to include five additional countries. Kim has been the recipient of several teaching awards, including the Trent University Excellence in Online Education Award in 2020. What motivated you to get involved in rural and remote nursing in particular? 
probably like many people who are from rural communities. So I grew up in a rural community. And the minute I was old enough to leave, I got out of town and moved to the city, you know, and, and had no intention of actually coming back to uh, the rural community that I grew up in, which is where I live now. I, I live in the community that I grew up in, which is, is um, you know, not what I anticipated happening when I was at that age. And I worked in larger urban centers for um, a good chunk of my nursing career in hospitals. And it was actually when I was working with our provincial regulatory body and was thinking, uh, you know, was getting some calls and, and inquiries coming in from nurses in, in rural communities. And I was really struggling with how our regulations and the expectations placed on, on nurses don't really recognize the realities of being in a rural and remote community. So for example, um, you know, we have requirements around confidentiality, which of course we, you know, we respect that and we wouldn't breach somebody's confidentiality, but there's also nuances in rural communities that, that people do expect to know. So for example, you know, I would always joke that I'd much rather have to deal with the college of nurses of Ontario than my grandparents. If I didn't let them know that a family member that I'd seen a family member in the hospital, for example, because they would say, well, why didn't you see them? We knew you were there and you didn't say anything to us. And so it was, that was the first kind of time that I sort of thought, you know, it's a little bit different for nurses in, in rural and remote communities. And so I started to explore that. And um, at the time I was entering into a faculty position, teaching, nursing, and, and which is what I've been doing for the past um, 21 years now. And have ever since kind of focused my research and work on looking at rural and remote nursing and trying to help other people see the value of nurses who work in those settings and, and, and the, the work that they do, because it's just, it's often not recognized that in many rural and particularly remote communities, it's actually nurses who are holding things together in, in those communities from a healthcare perspective. What are some of the challenges that Maybe somebody is listening from an urban center and has always lived in a big city and doesn't know the reality for specifically nurses in rural and remote communities. What are we looking at? What are the challenges? A lot of the challenges come down to access. They come down to, um, you know, having the proper infrastructure there to, to do your job. I like to, when I talk to students about rural and remote nursing, I always say, you know, the the things that happen in urban centers also happen in rural centers. So for example, you know, the, we have an opioid crisis that's happening. That also happens in rural and remote communities too. The challenge is that, you know, you can't have a safe consumption site in the same way, you know, in, in a, at a rural community that you could in downtown Toronto, for example. It just, it's not feasible. It, it doesn't work the same. And so it's, it's about addressing those same challenges without the same resources. When I look at the practice of rural and remote nurses, I see these nurses who have the ability to assess and figure out what's going on with patients without having access to a CAT scan, for example, or, um, you know, sometimes even an ultrasound machine. Those challenges just make their work even more complicated because they don't have, you know, they don't have a larger team they can call in. They don't have um, the ability to to rush to these services and, and figure things out. People that they're seeing as patients tend to be sicker because they might, again, be waiting longer periods of time to have access to care, to figure out what's going on with them. They're also people that they know, you know, their friends, their family members, they're, they're members of their community. And so when a tragic event happens and, and they're dealing with it, they're dealing with 
the tragic event, both as a professional, but also as a member of that community. And so it's, you know, it's double full because they, they understand who that person is in the community. And, you know, I've seen nurses who have cared for somebody in the hospital after a tragic accident. And then the next day they're organizing, you know, meals to be delivered to the, the family so that they, they have meals and they're taken care of. And so it's, it's really that combination of personal and professional in um, a lot of rural communities. And then I think that, you know, another huge challenge right now is that while we have a shortage of nurses globally, the shortage is even more critical in, in rural and remote settings. And it's actually leading to the need to close some healthcare centers and emergency departments because there's absolutely no staff to draw from. So one of the things that I have heard, and this is from a physician of color, Uh, that some of the issues of attracting uh, for uh, rural and remote uh, healthcare centers to attract people to work in rural and remote areas is racism. That there is a (laughs) preconceived notion or there are worldviews that are not accepting uh, of folks that are different. Is that an issue with nursing? It's ironic that you're bringing up that that particular um, area to explore because that is that is another area of work that I've been doing is is looking at addressing the problem of racism within the nursing profession and in particular for me my interest lies in in supporting Indigenous communities specifically and so um, you know we've seen media reports that is the the case. Um, absolutely in in rural and remote communities that that there is a problem with racism on the other hand i'm also very cautious about generalizing communities because i think i think there are some communities that 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 is not the case and again i i speak as a you know as a white woman without the privilege that's associated with that so my experiences might be different but for instance the community that i live in has been acknowledged for being um one of the most lgbtq plus friendly communities in the province of Ontario. So, and in saying that, I recognize there's, there's also probably lots of members of our community who say, well, you know, perhaps, but that's not my experience. So I do think that there, there are those issues that, that need to be addressed and discussed and, and brought out into the open if we are going to attract any level of diversity into our, our rural and remote communities and then support those providers when they're here. You mentioned research, and and you have done uh, extensive research on a, a bunch of things. Can you share some of that with uh, folks and, and, and talk about what you would like folks to know uh, that you found in your research? So most of what I've been looking at has been about ways to support uh, nurses who are practicing in, in rural and remote communities. And there's been a you know long uh, historical body of nursing research done in Canada. We have some amazing rural nurse researchers who whose work um, I think has really paved the way for uh, those of us who are coming behind to look at at um, you know nursing practice and so for me it's it's understanding why nurses choose to work in in rural and remote settings and what needs to happen to support them and so generally what we know from the research the reason that nurses choose to work in those settings most most often is because they're from those communities. So, you know, there's a strong link and and I'm going to use myself as an example. I moved away, but I came back and I'm not practicing the same way. I'm not, I'm not in a hospital. I have done uh, locums, which is where I go into a community and work for a period of time, but I'm not regularly working in that, um, that setting. But 
you know, many nurses who are working in rural and remote communities are from those communities. And so they come back at some, at some point in time. And so that, you know, that really needs to give us um, things to think about in terms of how we support uh, students in rural and remote communities to be able to go to school, because it's hard. I mean, I was fortunate I was able to leave my community and go to school in a larger center, but not everybody can. And so, you know, that should be prompting us to make some of those changes to to make it more accessible, more affordable, keep students in their communities and develop that relationship. Similarly, you know, a lot of the work has found the same things I've been talking about, you know, that it's it's a challenge around separating personal and professional boundaries in rural and remote communities. New nurses often feel that they don't have the ability to work in these settings in the same way because there's a lot of accountability and responsibility. You know, you might be the only nurse in an emergency department on a night shift. And so as a new nurse, and I recognize that, I mean, when I was a new nurse, there's no way I would have thought I can't do that. I need to have the supports there. So we need to think about ways to support new nurses to be in those communities so that, um, you know, that they do see it as a viable career and they, they're not thinking I can't do that because I'd be all by myself and I wouldn't have any supports in place. Education can be an issue because like ongoing education and professional development, because again, if you have a shortage of staff and you're, you're already very lean, it's hard to get time off to go away to attend education programs and most of those take place in the in larger centers so again it all comes down to that access and and the need to have supports in place and particularly again for our more remote communities it's triple fold in terms of of the impacts for those communities because of of that you know the added layer of trying to get into uh, for example a remote flying community there's some work too that that really is looking at the trauma associated with with being a nurse in those settings when you you know you know people who have been injured in accidents and particularly if you can't go home and talk about it you know if our our standards say that we have to keep that information confidential which we do but again you know when you're in a small community and you know a tragic event has happened and you go home to your family and they know it's happened but you can't talk about how you feel about that because you probably know the same people it's Without teams that come in and do any debriefing, it means that those nurses are carrying that that event and that experience with them without any ability to talk about what it meant, what it felt like. Um, and so they carry they carry that with them and it leads to trauma. And I think it leads to burnout more, more quickly for nurses who are in those settings. It's a significant issue. I think we've been forced to work within models that don't necessarily work for rural and remote communities. And, and I think that's, you know, probably some of the, the push for me right now is to try to raise that awareness is to talk about how we need to have models of funding, um, health and human resource and and care models that are reflective of, of the realities for rural and remote communities. So the federal government is is trying hard to come up with solutions. But like you said, there are so many more unique challenges for rural and remote communities. So is the answer to look at rural and remote communities as a separate entity and as urban centers as separate entities and not a blanket approach to all 
healthcare. What is it that you need from the federal government or nurses, I should say? What do you think that they need in order to be able to do their jobs? That's a great point because I think that I think we do need different ways to fund rural and remote communities compared to urban. And federal and provincial health authorities might argue that that there is, but there's not really. It's still, you know, it's still that blanket funding that comes out. It's still funding that looks at things like utilization and length of stay and, and things like that. And, and those are different in rural and remote communities. And and so I think that we've been forced to work within very urban-centric models of care, very urban-centric models of funding. Um, I go back to the example of, of a nurse working alone in an emergency department. There are uh, rural facilities that I have spoken to who have said they are only able to have one nurse on in their emergency department because of how they are funded by the provincial government. And they have no ability to change that. And then ironically, they have, then they can't staff those departments because, as I said, you know, a new nurse does not feel safe and and competent, nor should they, to be the only nurse working in an emergency department. Knowing that you still have somebody who can call in if if there's an issue, but if you're in the midst of, of dealing with a trauma, it's very hard to take time away to then go try to call people to to come in and help you. So those facilities are stuck within this model that says because of your utilization and the and the you know the size of your hospital and all of the factors that come into funding you can only fund to have one nurse in your emergency department on night shift and and then that you know is now leading to closures because they can't staff those facilities so it policy health and human resources and funding it's all tied in together that it needs to it needs to reflect a, a rural lens. And uh, I have a colleague in Australia who has done some work looking at um, attracting physicians to rural and remote communities. And she has this term that she uses that I, I think is is perfect. Um, so it's Dr. Ruth Stewart. She calls it geographical narcissism. So this notion that what happens in the rural, in an urban center is what needs to happen everywhere. And that's the solution. So we're going to take your, you know, we're going to take this box and we're going to throw it at you and you're going to make it work, even though it doesn't work for your facility. And I I think that, you know, if there's any shift we make, it's that we have to make this shift to looking at things from a rural lens and and look at what makes sense for those facilities to be able to, to staff. And I say that for, you know, funding from federal and provincial governments. I also say that to, um, nursing bodies as well. So both our regulatory and professional associations need to give consideration to the differences in in rural and remote communities because it's not the same. Are we hitting going to or have already hit perhaps a crisis situation in being able to staff even these rural and remote healthcare centers? You I, I hear it all the time that that uh, emergencies are being closed uh, because of lack of staffing. And who would want to go into the nursing profession and then work in these centers where you're thrown in to the wolves, basically, with no support? Are we hitting a a situation Mm -hmm. where no one's going to want to work in in rural and remote uh, communities? We are well into that situation. And it's not something that, you know, for people who work in rural and remote communities and, and, and research and, and nursing have been saying this for years. You know, for instance, I was part of a group that was doing a study back in 2009. 
And we were saying then, you know, we're on the cusp of a crisis in rural and remote settings when it comes to staffing and, and it wasn't listened to and it wasn't listened to. And I still don't think it's adequately listened to because I think we're still being viewed from that urban lens. And, you know, you see uh, right now all of these incentives to attract new nurses and, you know, we'll give you a $25,000 sign on bonus. We'll do this. We'll do that. Rural facilities can't compete with that. They they have no ability to provide those types of, of incentives. And so there needs to be different ways to look at recruiting, whether it's, you know, you recruit from your own communities and those types of things. But the greater issue is retention. I've seen rural and remote nurses who, this is before the pandemic, who have come into work ill because there's nobody to cover them. They've been there sick. They've been wearing a mask to protect their patients, again, long before the pandemic. and you know, when they get a few minutes, they're on the phone calling coworkers to say, look, I'm here, I'm sick. Is there any chance you could come in a little bit earlier? I can stay because they, they recognize the impact to the facility and the community if they're not there. So, you know, nurses who are working seven days a week, who are working extended hours of time, because again, they have that relationship to the community. They know the effect of um, you know, an emergency room closure because there's not enough staff. So it's it's that, it's, you know, retention in terms of how they're treated, both by the public, by, you know, there's been increasing amounts of violence towards nurses. So you can imagine if you're in a downtown Toronto hospital, dealing with a, a patient who's angry and upset or a family is very different than being in a rural centre where you might be the only person there. And, you know, you, there's, you might not have security to call and perhaps you're looking at having to call the local, uh, you know, OPP or, or local police if, if there, there's a local police force and then waiting for them to come. So risks associated with, with violence. And I think even, you know, I sort of think about my own community. I also see a bit of kind of bashing of nurses and local facilities on social media. And I think that doesn't, that doesn't help anything. You know, you don't know the realities of their job. And then, and then if you're, you know, you're going to post something on a page about the emergency room being closed and about how horrible the service is, how do you think you're going to attract people to work there if, if those are the messages you're sending? So I think that those, you know, we're long past crisis. We, we are, we're in the midst of probably the worst situation we've ever seen when it comes to staffing. And, and again, you know, then I look to remote communities and I know um, in Nunavut, for example, over the past six months or so, there have been, you know, multiple closures of nursing stations because there's absolutely no staff. So just imagine that, you know, then, then there's no service, no access, you know, residents of communities are, are given, uh, you know, phone numbers to call in the next community over perhaps to, to access care and service. So it's, it's not getting the same attention. It's kind of being lumped into the overall nursing uh, shortage, which is is horrific and, and horrendous. But there's a whole different lens to it when it comes to, to rural and remote communities. I want to talk about physician assistants because I did an episode about that. And I did get a response from a nurse who said, it is so complex. That whole issue is so complex because again, people who actually don't work in healthcare are are trying to create solutions without consulting the people that are on the ground. So, what are your thoughts on bringing in physician physician assistants, and what are the pros and cons for rural and remote communities, and as it relates to nurses? Because as a person who isn't in healthcare, I think that there is like a like a, a hierarchy 
that is unspoken that, you know, isn't collaborative. So what are your thoughts on that? I love that comment from the nurse that you spoke to. And I absolutely would echo those same thoughts about it being very complex. I have mixed feelings about the physician assistant role. I'm always welcoming having other providers because I think we, you know, we have such a shortage. We can't right now we need to be collaborative and all hands on deck. However, I have very mixed feelings because I think, why are we bringing in yet another healthcare provider when we're not even adequately using the ones that we have? So for instance, I would argue that a nurse practitioner is a better bang for your buck than a physician assistant because there it's it's a difference in care. There's a difference in, I mean, a physician assistant is paid by a physician and they're there to assist the physician. A nurse practitioner is there, is, is paid differently, not under OHIP structures. And, and just, you know, the evidence tells us that nurse practitioners provide exemplary care to, to patients in all of the settings that they work in. The other thing I'm finding too, and it's it's been a source of frustration for a long time, and I think it's it's you know coming up again and again right now too, is looking at the scope of practice in nurses in general. So in Ontario, where I practice, we have three levels of nursing. We have registered practical nurse, registered nurse, and nurse practitioner. I see evolutions in scope of practice for the RPN, registered practical nurse, and the nurse practitioner. That's amazing. I support those colleagues. The RPNs in particular need to be paid more. For the work that they're doing. What frustrates me is as a registered nurse, I have not seen any changes in what scope of practice can look like for me in the 30 plus years that I've been registered. Nothing has changed. There was legislation passed in 2015 to allow registered nurses to prescribe. It's gone, I'm sorry, it might have started in 2015. I might mix up my dates here, but it certainly it, it was passed a number of years ago. It hasn't been put into place yet. And so I think there's a huge loss of not using RNs to our capacity as we're starting to see these shifts. And so our role and our knowledge and our expertise, you know, we have a four years, four year honors degree, and that's not being utilized the way it could be. And and I often say to colleagues, I don't know how it is again in the province of Ontario, that I can practice one way when I'm in Northern Ontario and I practice very different way when I'm in Southern Ontario. And yet my scope of practice is exactly the same as defined by my regulatory body. So when I'm in Northern Ontario, I can practice under guidelines that are in place that allow me to assess, to um, you know, make a differential diagnosis based on those guidelines. I have physicians I consult if I need to consult. I can initiate a treatment or I can contact the physician consultant to get an order if there's something that's beyond my ability to initiate on my own. And I can dispense medications to people. I can provide a very different level of care in Northern Ontario than I can in Southern Ontario. And I don't understand why we are not moving forward to look at that registered nurse role, particularly in primary care. Um, You know, other countries have done it. I see it happening in Australia, New Zealand. I see in the UK where you've got RNs who are managing a lot of care in accident and emergency settings. And I don't see that happening in Canada. And I think that that is a source of frustration to kind of look at addressing the care needs. So I'm not saying that physician assistants aren't a good thing. I just don't understand why we are considering that when we're not utilizing professionals that we have now to the best of their abilities. So these are my words, not yours. But does some of mm-hmm. it have to do with physician ego, meaning that physicians don't want to give up control and perhaps they have come from an older school of 
you know, practice where the nurse is a literally uh, their assistant rather than the actual scope of care that they can provide? Does it have to do with the physician's resistance to actually give up some responsibility? I think there's a component of that. And again, I would never want to generalize all physicians because I have worked with those physicians that you've described. Absolutely, I have. Um, but I also have had the great honor of working with many physicians who are who are not like that. And I see right now a lot of advocacy from physician colleagues around the nursing shortage and, and raising awareness. So I think there's an element, but I would not say that all physicians are like that. What I would say, though, are that there are historical structures that have created these these barriers and have created um, a lot of what we see right now. So if you go back to another thing I weirdly like to do is to read uh, nursing history. And so I've been a little bit immersed in some nursing history books right now. And there was a, a book that was published in 1974, if you can believe it, that's called um, Hospitals, Paternalism, and the Role of the Nurse. And when I read that book, it could be today. You know, it's talking about how nursing practice prior to the evolution of hospitals was very much about, it was sort of like the call of the midwife type of, of nursing, where you had you had nurses in communities who, who did everything that needed to be done for, for the members of their communities. And, and that, while there was a physician there, the physicians also, you know, there's a relationship that they knew those nurses, they trusted those nurses. And so the nurses would consult the physician as needed, as needed but would do the things that needed to be done for for patients in their care. And then we saw this evolution of hospitals. And so that transcended what care looked like. And so suddenly that collaborative relationship changed because now, you know, physicians were, were used, the hospitals were where babies were delivered instead of being delivered at home. And people were sent for treatment and for surgeries that might have been cared for at home by the nurse. And so, you know, and then payment structures came in. And so it's that whole evolution of healthcare has really created a lot of these structures that I think have impacted those relationships and have led to this belief, even to the public, that nurses basically are just the doctor's helpers. And without understanding that, you know, that we are educated, we are knowledgeable, and that we, you know, I think the other big distinction too is that our practice is not such that you can just move us around the system. I, I mean, I know where my practice is, I know where my skills lie. I could not be put into a setting where I don't have those skills. I can't work pediatrics. That's not my that's not my skill set. That's not my specialty. So you can't just pop me in there. And so I think that that, you know, there's this lack of understanding by some of our physician colleagues, absolutely by hospital executives and decision makers and the larger public. And so I think that's where we're we're running into a lot of these issues too because we're not seen as these skilled, knowledgeable professionals, because there's this kind of outdated image of, of who and what a nurse is. I want to go back to what you mentioned, where folks go take to social media uh, to complain about their weight or their experience at their local hospital. 
And I want to give you the opportunity to say uh, what you would like to those folks. What would you say to someone who is listening, who is one of those people that has posted that I waited for 12 hours and the nurse was snippy or the admissions person, you know, didn't treat me with any respect, that kind of thing. And I also, I mean, let's not forget, we've seen some really, really tragic stories over the past several months where people couldn't get care before they perished, specifically in rural and remote Canada. So what message do you have for folks listening um, about nursing in particular and and how critical the respect is uh, for that profession? I think, I mean, the first thing I would do is acknowledge their frustration with their weight. I mean, absolutely. It is, it is horrible. You have to wait. It is frustrating. The people caring for you are equally frustrated that you are having to wait for that long period of time. They, they don't want to, you know, I, I'm quite certain if they walk out into the waiting room and see all those faces staring at them, it's, it's the last place they want to be to see that happening. I also want to, to be clear to say that it's never okay for bad behavior. I mean, yes, we're stressed and nurses are humans and, you know, sometimes we do we do make comments that or, or perhaps sound a bit abrupt when we shouldn't and and we should always go back and apologize if, if that's the case and, and that has happened so there's never you know bad behavior should never be tolerated and if it's something that you're experiencing or an experience of racism it needs to be followed up and reported and, and dealt with I think that what I'd say to to those people who are waiting is to channel your frustrations rather than taking it out on on those who are providing the care and who are trying to do the best that they can to see you in a timely fashion, to to take it to decision makers, to to start demanding from your your MP and your MPP that that attention is brought to this issue and that staffing uh, issues are being resolved and 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 looked at. And and the other piece I'd say too to the general public is also it's unfortunate that it's it's come to this right now, but you really have to become your best advocate in the healthcare system. And and I would say you know take somebody with you. Uh, to an appointment so that you've got a second pair of ears to write things down, to ask questions, to clarify, to make sure that you know the names of of who is providing you. Because the other challenge that we're seeing in many rural and remote communities too is the use of agency nurses. And so, you know, they might be here for a short period of time and then they're gone again and they may not know the community. So I think as a patient, you have to be your own best advocate. I think you need to recognize that the people caring for you are doing the best that they can in horrific situations, that we all need to to work together to try to address this, and that as healthcare providers, we need your help in getting this message up to decision makers to say this is not okay. Um, you know, it's not okay that we are looking at closures of departments. It's not, you know, it's not the fault of the nurses. So let's try to look at how we change those structures to make things better for them. And, you know, equally, our paramedic colleagues are seeing this happen too. You know, when there's no ambulances available to come out for service, then there's critical comments made about why and and not an understanding about about how the system works and and the supports that are needed. So I think um, you know report and follow up on on bad behavior because that needs to happen. Recognize that the healthcare providers you're working with are human and are trying to do the best they can and are equally frustrated. And please help advocating at the levels where it actually makes a difference, which is at the provincial health level and at the federal health level. With that in mind, is there any responsibility? Uh, of the municipalities, and, and I, in when I say that, I mean the municipal leaders. Can the municipal leaders be 
uh, advocates uh, to go up the, the next level to the province and, and, and advocate for their own community. I think in doing that, there also needs to be a recognition at that municipal level too. It's, it's all too easy to say, well, healthcare is a provincial responsibility. Um, you know, I think we, we've all done that where we say, well, you know, it's a provincial responsibility and yes, it is. But I think um, I have a, a colleague who um, it was in a meeting with a number of, of weeks ago and, and, you know, this is a perfect comment where she had stated, we need to stop having these silos. We need to stop, siloing everything into one person's responsibility we have a crisis and so we all need to work together and that means at a municipal level that we should go to our our councillors and our mayors and say look we need you when you're having conversations with the mp for the area and the mpp for the area to be talking about the crisis in healthcare access we need you to be sending that message home to them because it's one more voice that's that's coming you might go home and then craft a letter to council to say i'm concerned about healthcare access in our community and i'd like to know what council's doing on our behalf to advocate for more services from the province and the and the federal government is there anything else you'd like to add as uh, all you wear many hats so is there anything else you'd like folks to know i think i i would like to know I'd like to to let folks know that um, rural and remote areas are are struggling in terms of access and infrastructure and and dealing with significant health issues like mental health um, concerns that are you know tend to be higher in our communities. We have less resources to be able to to support members of our community who are are living with mental illness as well. Um, and those providers are doing the best that they can, but they need our help and support as well. And I think also to recognize, to really recognize, I mean, I always say that rural and remote nurses are, in my mind, the rock stars of, of nursing because they are innovators and leaders and they do it without the same supplies and resources that that other um, healthcare settings have. And so I think we need to value the, the work that they do. And I think we need to recognize and say, you know, you guys are amazing for, for what you do. And and as I've said to, to the students I work with, some of the most exquisite health assessment I've ever seen has happened in a rural or remote setting. And it's, it's nurses who are just using, you know, doing percussion, which is a, a form of using your hand to... Um, hit against, uh, you know, usually somebody's back and you're trying to elicit sounds to to see if you're picking up something from an organ or, or from lungs. I had the opportunity to witness a nurse performing percussion, at, at, you know, about a, a year or so ago, and it was the first time I'd seen it in so long. It, it, it almost struck me to think, oh my gosh, you know, I'd forgotten that there was a time where we would lay hands on people as, as one of our diagnostic tools. Now it's just too easy to say, go get a CT go get an MRI. And so I think that there's there's beauty in the work that's done by those rural and remote healthcare providers. And I would you know add in physicians and paramedics and all of those providers into that as well. And I think they need they need our support and they need us advocating for for more more assistance and, and services and a different funding model. I think what you said about putting your hands on patients is so symbolic to actually care and, and, and caring about one another, it almost brings okay. tears to my eyes. I think mm. it is so important that, you know, folks feel a hand on their back of support. And that includes medical professionals, but it also includes patients. Uh, okay. So using that example, I think is very symbolic. So mm -hmm. thank you so much. I could speak 
with you for hours. <laughs> I'm sure that we could talk. Um, I have so many more questions, so I would love to have you on again. But thank you so much, Kim. Really appreciate Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you very much. Want to keep the conversation going? Subscribe to the Clearing a New Path newsletter. Drop me an email. Follow the podcast on social media and or you can leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Clearing a New Path podcast artwork is supported by the graphic design of Katie Wilhelm and the music branding is by The Hankering Studio. The podcast is produced by Radar Media in Thames Centre, Ontario. It is the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, and Mississauga or neutral peoples who once used this land as their traditional beaver hunting grounds. The First Nations communities closest to the studio are Chippewa of the Thames First Nation, Oneida Nation of the Thames, Muncie, Delaware First Nation, and the Chippewas of Kettle and Stony Point. I will speak to many more people across Turtle Island this season, and as a settler here, I'm committed to deepening understanding of colonialism, the TRC's calls to action, and to reframing responsibilities to land and community. I am grateful to Mother Earth and Creator for the opportunity for love and connection, and to the spirits of the elders and the medicine people who still walk the earth. Until next time, 